And this is Melody. And this is Tawana Ford. And we're joined tonight by... Tawana and Jay. How are you doing? We're good. This is Jay. Hi, world. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have you. Very much so. Yep, thanks for having us. Of course, always. So what we're going to do tonight is um, I've actually curated uh, three different TED Talks that I thought would be a little different from what we've done the last couple of um, episodes. And um, I'd like to play those for you guys. I'm not going to um, shed light on them in advance. Melody, did you give them... In advance or any or yeah they yeah. know an idea of what we're doing okay so they have a little idea but they don't know the content at right. least they know the subject but not the content P probably unless they sat there and listened <laughs> to 16 no. minutes of Todd ted you, talks tawana actually thought it was about the ted movie so we, we have no clue <laughs> Oh, that's what I heard. I heard that. so, this morning after I got, you know, we were driving around and uh, Melody was like, I don't know if Tawana's out because she doesn't like TED Talks. And I'm like, all right. I mean, who doesn't like TED Talks? I'm like, okay, I guess. But hey, each to their own, you know. <laughs> yeah, we had this whole discussion about her not liking the conversations in the bear. And I was like, well, I haven't seen that movie in so long i'm gonna have to review it but yeah i mean i can join the call so yeah don't worry we haven't heard the, the clips i think she did share it but we hadn't had time to really sit down and listen so that's even better though honestly because what i'd like to do um is the just have you guys listen as it goes right and then if you have something that you want to shout out do it right um, there might be certain sections that we pause at just to pause. Mm -hmm. Um, but if not, what we'll do at the very end before we start the next one is obviously we'll collect our thoughts and our opinions and, right. and everything. So I like this first one. It's how to deconstruct racism one headline at a time. All right. With that said, we'll go ahead and start the first, uh, first head talk. What do you guys think? Ready. Let's do it. My parents gave me an extraordinary name. Baratunde Rafik Thurston. Now, Baratunde is based on a Yoruba name from Nigeria, but we're not Nigerians. That's just how black my mama was. Get this boy the blackest name possible. What does the book say? Rafiq is an Arabic name, but we are not Arabs. My mom just wanted me to have difficulty boarding planes in the 21st century. She foresaw America's turn toward nativism. She was a black futurist. Thurston is a British name, but we are not British. Shout out to the multi-generational, dehumanizing economic institution of American chattel slavery, though. Also, Thurston makes for a great Starbucks name, really expedites the process. <laughs> My mother was a Renaissance woman. Arnita Lorraine Thurston was a computer programmer, former domestic worker, survivor of sexual assault, an artist and an activist. She prepared me for this world with lessons in black history, 
in martial arts, in urban farming. And then she sent me in the seventh grade to the private Sidwell Friends School, where U.S. presidents send their daughters, and where she sent me looking like this. He's a big black boy with glasses. I had two key tasks going to that school. Don't lose your blackness and don't lose your glasses. This accomplished both. <laughs> Sidwell was a great place to learn the arts and the sciences, but also the art of living amongst whiteness. That would prepare me for life later at Harvard, or doing corporate consulting, or for my jobs at The Daily Show and The Onion. I would write down many of these lessons in my memoir, How to Be Black, which, if you haven't read yet, makes you a racist, because <laughs> you've had plenty of time to read the book. But America insists on reminding me and teaching me what it means to be black in America. It's December 2018. I'm with my fiancé in the suburbs of Wisconsin. We are visiting her parents, both of whom are white, which makes her white. That's how it works. I don't make the rules. <laughs> She's had some drinks, so I drive us in her parents' car, and we get pulled over by the police. I'm scared. I turn on the flashing lights to indicate compliance. I pull over slowly under the brightest streetlight I can find in case I need witnesses or dash cam footage. We get out my identification, the car registration, lay it out in the open, roll down the windows. My hands are placed on the steering wheel all before the officer exits the vehicle. This is how to stay alive. As we wait, I think about these headlines. Police shoot another unarmed black person, and I don't want to join them. All right, so let's just pause there real quick. Um, you know, Tawana, any stories you have to share? Or Melody, any stories you have to share? Yeah, do you or Jay have any stories of negative interactions with police or positive interactions? All of mine have been positive. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody been praying for me. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I think it's a little bit different, especially for women, too. I mean, we do have to be cautious, but for us, I don't think we have it as bad as black men. Sure. And even for me, like, I'm a, I'm a lighter-toned female, so for me, my experiences anyway haven't been negative like that. However, because I am black and I am aware of what's going on, I still proceed with caution. Yeah. Kind of similar to like what he was just talking about, right? You know, Bruin Day was just saying is, you know, I put my hazards on, I put my hands on the steering wheel, you know. Yeah, he did all the right things to try to avoid death, which in and of itself is super sad. Mm -hmm. I've been pulled over I have lost count and ha- I've never been pulled over once. That is ridiculous. Not once. You look like a white boy in a pickup truck. That's why. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> He's half Spanish, but it's white as hell Spanish. <laughs> um I would say that women have an easier time generally unless it's a woman cop. Mhm. Um most women cops I've had interactions with are extremely professional. Hmm. I've never had any woman cop. 
get I've always like, heard the opposite. Out I've of pocket with are, me. They are just like insanely crazy, especially woman on man. That's what I've heard. Oh yeah, no. I've never had I've never been pulled over by a woman. So mm. I've never had that experience, but I've dealt with them in like a I've been around a situation where a woman cop was there and she was handling her business. And I was like, oh, wow, she's like very by the book doing her job. Mm -hmm. I'm a little intimidated. (laughs) Um, For the most part with women on women anyway, they they are a little bit more sensitive to us for the most part. But being that I do have family members in law enforcement, they do say that they have to be a little bit tougher when it comes to pulling the men over because, of course, you know, Men already think, most men already think that, you know, they are stronger than women. So, of course, they have to um, exude some type of um, authority. Authority, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there's some machismo that goes on there, right? Where it's like, you know, you're you're a woman doing a man's job or something like that, you know. I'm sure they get that a lot. Yeah. What business do you have telling me what to do? You know, that kind of thing. Now, I have... I don't know if you guys have time for this. I have a quick, really bad quick, experience. Maybe a quick melody. Last time you did it like <laughs> ten minutes. Let's let's keep it at five. Okay. <laughs> so, I got pulled over one time when I was a teenager. I was seventeen, and I had three um, guys in the car with me. And the wow, Why one three guys in your car. Whatever. We were all friends. Um, the one trooper that pulled me over started screaming at me as soon as he came up to the car and told me to get out of the car and I was freaking out. So I went with him and he stood at the front of his car, um, right past the front door and opened it with his arm. So he was standing in the opening and he kept yelling at me to get in the front seat of his car. And I was like, this isn't my, every alarm bell in my body was going off. Like, this isn't right. I don't know what's going on. And I just kept saying, I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable. And he's screaming everything he could possibly scream at me to scare me. Like, I'm going to take your license away. You were going twice the speed limit, which I wasn't. And I know there's drugs in the car and all this crazy stuff. And then another trooper pulled up and immediately, like a light switch, his tone changed. And all of a sudden, he was worried about, you know, our well-being that we were going too fast and this, this, and this. And it was just a crazy experience. And I ended up just getting a ticket. It was a heinous ticket. It was like $500 for speeding in a construction zone, which was legit. I was speeding, but I wasn't going twice the limit. And when my mom turned it in, because I was 17, she mailed it for me, enabling. Um, She sent a note. I didn't know at the time about what happened in my experience. And apparently he had so many things in his record that they sent the check back and just, it was like it had never happened. It was crazy. So I think that there's a little bit of issue with male cops and females too. I'm sure. I mean, anytime that you get caught up in one of those situations, you know, male against female or whatever, but I've never been afraid of being pulled over except like, crap, I'm going to get a ticket. Sure. That sounds like one of the situations where the police is power struck because you have to look at it like that, too. Sometimes you get police officers that may not even be a racist thing, but it could just be a, a power struck thing, you know, because they are, you know, upholding the law and they do have some authority over what happens or what we do over the road. So you do have to look at it, too, like that. You could have just 
happened to run into a police officer who was just feeling himself that they wanted to be in control of something. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. Very true. Well, so, let's see what this. So, with that said, say. let's let's see what Mr. Thurston has to say after this. The good news is our officer was friendly. She told us our tags were expired. So to all the white parents out there, if your child is involved with a person whose skin tone is rated Dwayne The Rock Johnson or darker, (laughs) you need to get that car inspected, update the paperwork every time we visit. That's just common courtesy. (laughs) I got lucky. I got a law enforcement professional. I survived something that should not require survival. And I think about this series of stories. Police shoot another unarmed black person. And that season, when those stories popped up everywhere, I would scroll through my feed, and I would see a baby announcement photo. I'd see an ad for a product I had just whispered to a friend about yesterday. I would see a video of a police officer gunning down someone who looked just like me. And I'd see a think piece about how millennials have replaced sex with avocado toast. <laughs> it was just one thing I want to point out real quick. I, I, this just popped in my head, Melody. Um, you might have been afraid for a lot of different things, but you probably were not being afraid of being killed. No, never once. I was, it, it did trigger me because it was about six months after I had been raped. Mm-hmm. So I was scared, but it probably was just a power trip, but it made me feel unsafe, but, you but never... not in a mortality way. Right. And that's where he's pointing this out, right? Yep. Where, whew, I survived another police encounter and thank God I had a police professional as opposed to something else. And right. I can't imagine having to live like that. That's crazy to have to think like that, right? That's, it's just absurd because, you know, technically the police are here to protect and serve, and we're, we're afraid of the people that's supposed to be protecting and, and serving us, the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and just the protect and serve by itself, protect and serve whom and what? Everyone. It should be. It should be, you would think. You, yeah. Right? And it's a sad thing that there is a huge amount of our population who doesn't feel that way. And it's because of bad cops. And look, I'm, I'm just going to say this. You know, everybody is a person. Everybody was born by a mama and a dada. Right? Everybody has family. Everybody has siblings everybody has everybody right whether it's the crackhead that you see digging through trash cans or the ceo of a major company everyone has problems right Mm -hmm. and the fact that you see one person maybe like the crackhead i don't care if it's white or black just because he's fallen on hard times doesn't mean he's any better or worse than anybody else Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And unfortunately, I think what happens is, and Melody and I have had a lot of different conversations about this. I think a lot of times 
police officers end up going on a lot of calls and, you know, all this and all that. They see a lot of the worst of society. Yeah, and then, you know, prejudice sets in. And and you, you pair that with very little training, mm-hmm. very little mental health support. And before you know it, the minute that they drive by, mark my words, and I'll put a paycheck on the desk for this. Right? They drive by a white crackhead sitting there rummaging out of a trash can. They'll drive right by. They see a black crackhead doing the same thing. They'll stop and, and interrogate. Mm-hmm. And that's what's wrong. That's the bias that we were talking about last time. Remember, Tawana? Implicit bias? Yeah, I remember. So, anywho's, sorry for a little tangent there, but we'll <laughs> let's go ahead and continue. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> it was a confusing time. Those stories kept popping up, but in 2018, those stories got changed out for a different type of story. Stories like white woman calls cops on black woman waiting for an Uber. That was Brooklyn Becky. Then there was white woman calls police on eight-year-old black girl selling water. That was Permit Patty. Then there was woman calls police on black family barbecuing at Lake in Oakland. That was the now infamous barbecue, Becky. And I contend that these stories of living while black are actually progress. We used to find out after the extrajudicial police killings. Now we're getting video of people calling 911. We're moving upstream, closer to the problem and closer to the solution. I think this is a phenomenal so I point. I started a collection right here of as many of these stories as I could find. I built an evolving, still growing database at baratunde.com slash living while black seeking understanding. I realized the process was really diagramming sentences to understand these headlines. And I want to thank my Sidwell English teacher, Erica Berry, and all English teachers. You have given us tools to fight for our own freedom. What I found was a process to break down the headline and understand the consistent layers in each one. A subject takes an action against the target engaged in some activity so that white woman calls police on eight-year-old black girl is the same as white man calls police on black woman using neighborhood pool is the same as woman calls cops on black Oregon lawmaker campaigning in her district. They're the same. Diagramming the sentences allowed me to diagram the white supremacy, which allowed such sentences to be true. And I will pause to define my terms. When I say white supremacy, I'm not just talking about Nazis or white power activists. And I'm definitely not saying that all white people are racist. What I'm referring to is a system of structural advantage that favors white people over others in social, economic, and political arenas. It's what Brian Stevenson at the Equal Justice Initiative calls the narrative of racial difference. I think that is a super powerful definition of white supremacy. Yeah, I do too. I really, really do, because when you think of white supremacy, Everyone's like, oh, Nazis or this or, Yeah, you, know. you think of the racist white people that are killing black people or 
lynching or it is the narrative of racial difference yep i think that's super powerful and i think he's making a super point here Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go ahead and let it play the story we told ourselves to justify slavery and jim crow and mass incarceration and beyond so when i saw this pattern repeating i got angry but I also got inspired to create a game, a game of words that would allow me to transform this traumatic exposure into more of a healing experience. I'm going to talk you through the game. The first level is a training level, and I need your participation. Our objective to determine if this is real or fake, did this happen or not, here's the example. Catholic University law librarian calls police on student for being argumentative. Clap your hands if you think this is real. <laughs> Clap your hands if you think this is fake. <laughs> the real... All right, guys, what do you think? Real, real or, or fake? fake? Oh, we know that's real. We see <laughs> stuff like that, we hear about stuff like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all laugh, which one you laugh? What I you think thought, it's fake. <laughs> You think it's fake? Yeah. Let me see. Catholic being argumentative. Um, I'm gonna say it's real. Okay. Good. Let's let's let it play. Bills have it, unfortunately. And for point of information, being argumentative in a law library is the exact right place to do that. <laughs> the student should be promoted to professor. Yes. <laughs> Training level complete, so we move on to the real levels. Level one, our objective is simple. Reverse the roles. That means woman calls cops on black Oregon lawmaker, becomes black Oregon lawmaker, calls cops oh. on woman. That means white man calls police on black woman using neighborhood pool, becomes black woman, calls police on white man using neighborhood pool. How do you like them reverse racist apples? Mm. That's it. Level one, complete. Interesting. And so we level up to level two where our objective is to increase the believability of the reversal. Let's face it, a black woman calling police on a white man using a pool isn't absurd enough. But what if that white man was trying to touch her hair without asking? Mm. Mm? Or maybe he was making oat milk while riding a unicycle. <laughs> or maybe he's just talking over everyone in a meeting. We've all been there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, we've all been there. So that's it. Level two, complete. But it comes with a warning. Simply reversing the flow of injustice is mm -hmm. not justice. That is vengeance. That is not our mission. That's a different game. So we level up to level three. It's really where the objective is to change said. the action. Also known as calling the police is not your only option. OMG, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> and I need to pause the game to remind us of the structure. A subject takes an action against the target engaged in some activity. White woman calls police on black real estate investor inspecting his own property. California Safeway calls cops on black woman donating food to the homeless. Mm. Golf club twice calls cops on black women for playing too slow. In all these cases, the subject is usually white. The target is usually black, and the activities mm. are anything from sitting in a Starbucks 
to using the wrong type of barbecue, to napping, to walking agitated on the way to work, which I just call walking to work. <laughs> and my personal favorite, not stopping his dog from humping her dog, which is clearly a case for dog police, not people police. All of these activities add up to living. Our existence is being interpreted as crime. Now, this is the wow. obligatory moment in the presentation where I have to say not everything is about race. Crime is a thing, should be reported. But ask yourself, do we need armed men to show up and resolve this situation? Because when they show up for me, it's different. We know that police officers use force more with black people than with white people. And we are learning the role of 911 calls in this. Thanks to preliminary research from the Center for Policing Equity, we're learning that in some cities, most of the interaction between cops and citizens is due to 911 calls, not officer-initiated stops. And most of the violence, the use of force by police on citizens, is in response to those calls. Further, when those officers responding to calls use force, that increases in areas where the percentage of the white population has also increased, a.k.a. gentrification, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. unicycles and oat milk, mm -hmm. a.k.a. when barbecue Becky feels threatened, she becomes a threat to me mm -hmm. in my own neighborhood, which forces me and people like me to police ourselves. We quiet ourselves. We walk on eggshells. We maybe pull over to the side of the road under the brightest light we can find so that our murder might be caught cleanly on camera. Mm. And we do this because we live in a system in which white people can too easily call on deadly force to ensure their comfort. Wow. Okay, so I'm just going to pause it there real quick. That was a lot in a small package, right? God what do you? Yeah. That was a lot. What do you guys think? So as I was listening, I definitely agree with a lot of what he was saying. Um, but some of the things when he was saying like, hey, do we have to call the police for everything? Well, my issue is it's not even the issue of just calling the police for everything. The more so the issues, because at the end of the day, people are going to be people are going to be racist or like what they like or don't like what they like. At the end of the day, you, you may not be able to change what somebody likes and not like. And we have found out that people sometimes need a mediator in certain situations. Sometimes they don't know how to help us. So it's not the fact that we shouldn't call the police. It's, we shouldn't have to worry about once the police get there, are we going to be the target? Can they not handle the situation accordingly without anybody getting hurt, especially if there's no one being violent, it's just two people in a dispute. I think, um, I, and I think, so, I think he addressed that, right? And I think that's one of the things he said is like, you know, based on these calls, do we need armed officers to show up? Well, who would you prefer to show up? Is that? I'm, I'm just asking. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole lot of we're talking a lot about community policing, mm -hmm. right? Um, Maybe a mental health counselor or a mediator. So, whoa, whoa, okay, okay. So I'm in retail. So if I give, a, if I get a customer that's you know showing their ASS, um, you telling me 
that I need to call or a mediator should show up when I call 911? That's, is that what you're saying? Instead of a, a police officer? No, I think I think there's a definite difference there, right? Because that's that's a full-on crime. That's shoplifting. No, that's a good point, though. No, no because If you, you feel threatened... There's not a customer... So the customer's not shoplifting or nothing. Let's just say maybe they want to return something and... Oh. Okay. You know, but they cannot. You, you, the store is not accepting COVID. Boom. Stop a lot of stores from accepting anything at the sure. moment. They was like putting it on pause. Let's sure. just say you just get an upset customer. They upset. They mm-hmm. feel like they've been inconvenienced and they want to do the return or the exchange or whatever. Right. They're not they're not like being violent, but they are being hostile and impatient with the employee. So are you saying in that moment? Even when the employees feel feeling like, okay, there's nothing I can really do, but the customer will not leave that a therapist or a counselor should show up instead of a law enforcement. Well, (laughs) yeah, that's a tough choice. That's a tough choice. I would say no. I mean, if you're feeling physically threatened or you're feeling, you know, this person is going to do something to you. But see, that's the underlying problem is a lot of white people feel that way. Because black skin has been weaponized. Mm -hmm. That just because a black person is walking to work. So let's give us, let's give a realistic situation here, right? So a a Becky, right, is in a store. (laughs) And she can't return her whatever it is at the store. And she's saying... No, you're going to take this or else I'm going to call my lawyer. I, I mean, come on. I mean, I don't know what I don't know what she would say, but I've seen some videos where like the actual customer, a white person, yeah. complained about mask. And the the store associate would be like, "I'm going to call the police." And then they'd be like, "No, I'm going to call the police." And then they call the police. <laughs> um, and they both show up for different calls. <laughs> <laughs> and they upset because they be really wanting to get into these stores without these masks. And like they call them the police, and then the police like you know. And like, you know what? The police are pissed off because they're getting called for a mask call. <laughs> but now, yeah, why aren't the police pissed off that they're called for some stupid thing like a dog humping another dog? Yeah, that's just ridiculous. I mean, like we're not okay for the stupid, stupid stuff. Of course, we know just like. They just call in to be ignorant. But the fact of the matter is, whether they are calling or not, the point is we still should not be at fear of our lives when they do arrive. And I think that's the whole whole point of it. No matter what reason they're called, we should not have to fear, oh, my God, a cop is coming. Are we going to be pointed at? Are we going to look like we're the initiator of the argument? Like, we shouldn't have to fear cops. At no, the end of the day, no matter why they're being called. A hundred percent. And that's the thing is, you know. And maybe there should be a little bit more responsibility or onus on the 911 operator. So you're telling me that. I think it's on the cops. Because don't they, don't they like prioritize the urgency of the calls when they come in? Yes. But here's the thing. I kind of agree with, I, I kind of agree with the last statement though. Is that like, for example, let's say that there was an issue. Um, there's a house burglary, right? Okay. And it happens to be, as the cops are pulling up, a black person walking 
in front of the house, right? And if the person said, oh, it was somebody who was wearing, it was a black person and, and you know, whatever, black guy and all that, right? I guarantee you the cops are going to stop and talk to that person. Mm-hmm. Regardless if they were only there 30 minutes after the fact that the robbery happened. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I kind of agree with what, what was just said. It shouldn't have to necessarily be that way. Because here's the thing. As a white person, I could be walking in front of that same exact house. I guarantee you I would not be stopped and asked by the cops. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like the police need to be policed at the end of the day. Because I feel like we got... Again, I'm going to stick with the protect and serve, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. Protect and serve. Um, and, they, and they get away with so much, and when they're not being accounted for the mistakes that they, or the, the issues that they are bringing forth, when they're not being committed of the crimes that they're committing, that's the issue. They're not being penalized for the crimes. And I think once the laws get better to say, hey, okay, you want to be racist, fine, do be you, but stay in your own lane. And once you cross that lane, there are penalties. And until these penalties and consequences are equal across the board no matter of the skin color is going to continue until the police are policed it's really going to continue because at the end of the, you can't stop people from being racist i mean we, people have been racist i don't know what anybody's religion is but if you believe in god and jesus people have been racist since before jesus christ i mean this is something that has been always around so it's going to be very difficult to try to change the mindsets of people but my thing is you don't have to like me you stay in your lane and I stay in my lane. I respect you from a distance. You respect me from a distance. And as long as we don't cross that path, we shouldn't have any issues. Mm-hmm. But if we do, we should have faith that our law enforcement is going to protect and be even according on both sides. And that's where the issue is. And that's where the line, because you can't wait on the people to just make the change at the end of the day. You can't wait on these police officers because, again, they're in authority. So they're going to you know, use their authority and their power. And, and, and until there's some laws to kind of say, hey, you feel to be protected. You, got, you, you do have authority over making sure that people are safe. But once you take it out of context, then this is where, you know, the laws come in and this is where we have to, you know, stand up for the people. So we definitely need more laws that's standing more so up for the people than protecting our cops because that's really what the laws are set up when you really look at it. We have more protection over cops than we do of of the citizens. Yeah, one of those laws is qualified immunity, which is definitely needs to be amended. And that basically protects cops from any civil suits, you know, they can violate civil rights and not, you know, they can kill someone on accident, basically, and not be sued by the family. Yeah, these people kill cops. I mean, they, the, these cops are killing people, and it's on video. And I know they say proven um, innocent until proven guilty. I, I get it. I totally get it. But there's video, and they put them on leave, and it's leave with pay. Now, mm. if you want to put them on leave, that's fine. But, I, you know, why are they getting paid? They, they have literally committed a crime. Now, we don't know. You just don't leave. You just can't get paid for it. So that's another thing, too. Like, these people are literally out here committing murder. They get to be on leave with pay. They get all the severance pay. When they leave, they get all these... Um, all kinds of little things when, when stuff happens, when they do stuff. Um, and it's, it's just not fair. Yeah. It, it, it really, like I said, I'm going to stick with it. Like I, 
I have this conversation all the time and I always go back to they need to change the laws to protect more of the people than the cops. It has to be a fair because until they do that, the cops are going to just continue to do what they want because they know they have, you know, the backup. Yeah, they know they can abuse their power because they're protected. I agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've just been sitting here quiet and listening to, to the dialogue. Here. No, no, seriously. That's my role, Rich. Wait a minute. <laughs> I've been listening. I've been listening. You had a lot of really good points, Jay. Um, but I have to agree, Jay. I mean, honestly, I mean, there's protect and serve. That's what it needs to go back to. Go back to the core. Protect and serve. Go back to we protect everybody in the community and we serve everybody in the community. You got a flat tire on the side of I-95. I don't care who you are. I help you put your spare tire on. Mm-hmm. I protect you in your time of need. Yep. Right? It's not I protect some in their time of need. Yep. And I serve others when they need it. Mm-hmm. You know? And it and it's... it's We've, str- we, 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 we've strayed so far from that. You know? One thing that really got me twisted up, I'll be honest was the Aubrey case mm-hmm. right here. Palmish Gardens. Yeah. You know, and that one really got me because it was that 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 guy had no way to know. Wait, are you talking about Corey Jones? Corey Jones, I'm sorry. Yeah, in Palm Beach Gardens. In Palm, he broke I'm sorry, down. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Corey Jones. Um, I always want to call him Aubrey. I don't know why. But Corey Jones, yes. Where an unmarked minivan. Off duty. Yeah. <laughs> Stopped him. Well, he was already broken down. Yeah. I mean, and, if, yeah, an I gotta be honest guy. with you. I gotta be honest with you. If it was me in any other, in that situation, I'd have been shitting my pants. Mm-hmm. If a cop... If some just random person in an unmarked minivan stopped me at 2.30 in the morning. When you were broken down on the side of the road. Or whatever time it was. Mm -hmm. I'd have been been really scared. And I'm already on the phone with AAA. You gotta be kidding me. That's an assassination. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's not protect and serve. No. But it's, it's, that's the norm for some for, for for our black men, though. I mean, like, you definitely don't want to be stopped on the side of the road at night. Um, it's definitely not a good thing, but that's, that's sad. That's just our reality. Even 10 years ago, I had a friend, um, Ben, that said that if, you know, he didn't own a vehicle because it's too many problems. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm thinking he had a lot of, like, flat tires, it, broke down a lot, you know, something like that. He's like, because I get pulled over for walking while black, for bike riding while black. I just don't want a car. It's too many problems. I live in the city. I can walk everywhere. I just don't want a car. There's too many issues that could possibly pop up if I don't have my registration or if my driver's license isn't, you know, in my pocket. I just don't want the problems. 
and I, it blew my mind. This was 10, no, probably 15 well, years yeah, ago. I was say close and, to 20. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow, I'm old. Um, <laughs> but he, he was dead serious and I couldn't believe it. And then I find, we go to the beach one night and he was just a passenger in one of our cars and he had left his cell phone in the car. So my friend gave him his keys and was like, oh, just go get it. And he's like, all right, just for walking to the car with the keys in his hand, he did the beep beep. It opened. He got his phone. Police stopped him and asked him what he was doing there, if it was his vehicle. Definitely Palm Beach. No, North Palm Beach. <laughs> well like same one and the same yeah you know juno beach actually i'm sorry it was juno beach police yeah so juno beach police uh stopped him for walking while black you know at like nine o'clock at night it wasn't even that late and we were all at the beach oh he was past curfew for black <laughs> people yeah it was crazy but that was my, one of my first sort of interactions where I could not believe he got hassled. We went to the beach all the time. I went to the beach at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning whenever I couldn't sleep. Never got hassled. Never got stopped. Because you're white. Yeah. It's just crazy. So what's our next TED Talk? <laughs> you being funny with the tag. Okay, yes. Okay, I got it mixed up. I thought you was talking about something else, Marty. This is getting heavy, isn't it? <laughs> All right, guys. So the next one I want to play. This one, um, I got to be honest with you. It's super interesting. It gets a it it gets a little dull in the middle, but the very end is is totally worth listening to the whole thing. Okay. So I'm gonna let it go. Um, this one is called Why I, as a black man, attend KKK rallies. Mm. I, would, I would not do that. <laughs> He's got some balls. I'll say that, right? <laughs> Yikes. Okay. All right, here we go. Well, this is a police officer's uniform, a Baltimore City police officer in particular, named Robert White. He gave me this uniform when he and I became the very best of friends. But, you know, I first met Robert, well, I first heard about Robert White when I was a teenager. And then I later met him. I met him just a month after he got out of prison. He was in prison serving a sentence for assault with intent to murder two black men with a shotgun and another sentence conspiring to bomb a synagogue in Baltimore. Now, I am a professional musician. I tour all over this country and around the world playing music. So how do I end up with a policeman's uniform? He worked for the police department by day. But he also had another job, which required a different kind of uniform. He was the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan for the state of Maryland. This is his robe. This is what he wore when he conspired to bomb the synagogue and when he made plans 
to kill two black men with a shotgun. To understand why I have these items, let's take a little journey back in my life. I was born in Chicago in 1958. At the age of 10 in 1968, my parents had moved to Belmont, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. I was one of two black kids in the entire area, at least in the school. I joined the Cub Scouts at the age of 10 at the invitation of some of my white male friends. And we had a march from Lexington to Concord to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. My den mother let me carry the American flag. And as I was marching as the only black scout in this parade, along with the Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, and Brownies, I think 4-H Club was there and some other organizations, as I was marching down the street, somewhere along the parade route, I began getting hit with bottles, soda pop cans, rocks, and debris from the street by just a small group of white spectators mixed in with the all-white crowd on the sidewalk. This was the first time I ever experienced anything like this, and I did not understand. I thought perhaps those people did not like the scouts. I did not realize I was the only scout getting hit until my den mother and the other scout leaders came rushing over and huddled over me with their bodies and escorted me out of the danger. They never explained why, even though I kept asking, why are they hitting me, why are they hitting me? What had I, what had I done wrong? When I got home, my mother and father, who were not at the march, were fixing me up with mercurochrome and band-aids and asking me, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? I told them I didn't fall down. I told them exactly what happened. For the first time in my life, my parents sat me down at the age of 10 and explained racism to me. I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. It was inconceivable to me that someone who had never laid eyes on me, never spoken to me, knew absolutely nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than this, the color of my skin. So I did not believe my parents. But more and more incidents began happening. And I realized my parents had told me the truth. I didn't know why people felt that way, but I realized that there were some people who did. So at the age of 10, I formed a question in my mind. That question was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? So I grew up in my adolescent years spending a lot of time buying books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, anti-Semitism, trying to understand that ideology, trying to get the answer to my question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? None of these books provided the answer. So then in my adult life, I thought, you know what? Who better to ask, how can you hate me when you don't even know me, than someone who would join an organization whose historical premise has been hating those who do not look like them and who do not believe as they believe. So I had my secretary who books my bands and all that kind of stuff. I said, listen, I want you to get a hold of this guy. His name is Roger Kelly. I acquired Mr. Kelly's phone number. Mr. Kelly is what's known as the Imperial Wizard. 
Bob White was a grand dragon, meaning state leader. Imperial Wizard is a national leader in the Ku Klux Klan. I was told, do not fool with Mr. Kelly, Darrell. He will kill you. But I had to have the answer to my question. I was hoping it wouldn't be the final answer if I met him. So I gave Mary his phone number and said, give him a call. Do not tell him that I'm black. But see if he'll sit down and, and uh, give your boss an interview. He wants to discuss the Ku Klux Klan. So she did. Mr. Kelly agreed. So we reserved a motel room. Mary and I got there early. Right on time, to the minute, there was a knock on the door. Mary hops up and runs around the corner, opens the door. In walks Mr. Kelly and his bodyguard. The bodyguard was armed with a sidearm right here on his hip. When they saw me, they just kind of like froze, because you know, they were expecting a white guy. And I stood up and went like this to show I had nothing in my hands, and I approached. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, I'm Daryl Davis. He shook my hand. The bodyguard shook my hand. I said, come on and come on and have a seat, have a seat. Mr. Kelly sat down, and the bodyguard stood at attention to his right. And we conversed, agreed on some things, disagreed on other things, but he let me know. He let me know that I was not his equal. I was inferior, he was superior. And this was justified and determined by the color of my skin. I wasn't there to fight him, I was there to learn from him. Where does this ideology come from? Because once you learn where it comes from, you can then try to figure out how to address it and see where it's going. So we continued conversing, maybe about a little over an hour into this interview, there's kind of a strange noise in the room, kind of a and we all jumped. And I popped up out of my seat, there's a table between us, and I was ready to come across that table and take down Mr. Kelly and the bodyguard because I knew that Mr. Kelly had made that noise. I didn't know what that noise was, I could not discern it, and I kept hearing the voice of the person who gave me his phone number saying, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly, he will kill you. I did not want to die that day. But I knew that he made the noise, and I'm trying to think, what did I just do, what did I just say to cause him to make some kind of weird noise? And you know, I had gone into what you call survival mode. In survival mode, people will do one of three things. Some people, you know, when you fear for your life, some people will just tense up and start shaking, and you can be taking a hammer or a bat and hitting them on the head, and they will not even be deflecting the blows, just be like this. That is called paralysis by fear and it is a real thing. The second thing people will do is they will try to run away as quickly as possible to put as much distance between the source of the fear and themselves. That is the best option if you can do that. However, it was not an option for me because you cannot outrun a bullet in a motel room. I was not armed, neither was my secretary. The only person I know for sure who was armed was the bodyguard. You can see his weapon right here. I did not know if Mr. Kelly had a weapon up under his jacket or not. He was wearing a dark blue suit and tie. The third option is do a preemptive strike to mitigate the danger. In other words, get them before they get you. So I was about to do that. And when I came up out of my seat, I was looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes. I didn't say a word, but my eyes were speaking loud and clear. In fact, my eyes were shouting so loud he could hear my eyes. My eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? Well, Mr. Kelly's eyes had fixated upon mine, and his eyes were silently asking me the same question. 
where the bodyguard had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between, between the clan leader and me, like, what did either one of y'all just do? Well, Mary, she realized what happened. She had filled the uh, hotel room ice bucket with ice and put some cans of soda in there to get them cold, to be hospitable, and offer Mr. Kelly a beverage. The ice had melted, and the cans came cascading down the ice. And then it made that same noise. And we all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. Now, I won't say this was a learning moment, but it was definitely a teaching moment. And what was taught was this. All because some foreign, an underscore, highlight, circle the word foreign, entity of which we were ignorant, being the bucket of ice in Kansas soda, entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we all became fearful and accusatory of one another. Thus, ignorance breeds fear. We fear those things we do not understand. If we do not keep that fear in check, that fear in turn will breed hatred because we hate those things that frighten us. If we do not keep that hatred in check, that hatred in turn will breed destruction. We want to destroy those things that we hate. Why? Because they cause us to be afraid. But guess what? They may have been harmless and we were just ignorant. We saw the whole chain almost unravel to completion had the bodyguard drawn his gun and shot, namely me or my secretary, because it's his job to protect his boss and protect himself. Or had I pounced and hurt one of them trying to protect myself or my secretary? We did see, we did see that whole chain unravel to completion three months ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, two hours from where I live, because ignorance was present, fear was present, hatred was present, and destruction occurred when a white supremacist got in his car and tried to mow down people and resulted in killing one young lady named Heather Heyer. So, we carried on with this interview, no more incidents. I would invite Mr. Kelly to my home. He would come to my home. He'd bring his bodyguard. Bodyguard would sit on the couch next to him. Sometimes the bodyguard would get bored, pull out his gun, start twirling it on his finger like this while Mr. Kelly and I talked. I would invite over some of my other friends, my Jewish friends, my black friends, my white friends, other people, just to engage in conversation with Mr. Kelly other than me. I want him to experience different people. This went on for a couple years. He did not invite me to his home, but he would have dinner or lunch at my table with me, this, this inferior person that he deemed not his equal. After a couple years, he began coming down to my house by himself, a national leader in the Ku Klux Klan. And then he began inviting me to his house. I would see his Klan den, and I would take pictures and take notes for my, for my, uh, my own knowledge and things. Then he began inviting me to Klan rallies. I'd go to these Klan rallies that have a 20 or 30 foot cross, wooden cross, two beams tied together, wrapped in burlap. The burlap was soaked in what they call Klan cologne, otherwise known as diesel fuel or kerosene. And Klansmen and Klanswomen in their robes and hoods and torches were paraded around in a circle around the cross. And either the Grand Dragon or Imperial Wizard would say, Klansmen, halt! and they'd all stop. Then he'd say, for God, and they'd say, for God. 
for race, for race, for country, for country. Klansmen approached the cross, and they'd all close in to the base of the cross. Klansmen light the cross, and they throw their torch down at the foot, and whoosh, this big cross would be on fire. There you go, there's one, uh, one rally, such rally, with the Klansmen. That's conversing with the Klan at a rally. And there's a rally with the cross on fire. Now, they would give speeches, I would take more notes, and try to absorb and try to understand, not that I'm believing in what they're preaching, but I'm trying to learn and understand what is the impetus for it. So, after a while, CNN got wind of this and wanted to do a, a story on me. They knew me as a musician, they knew who Mr. Kelly was as a Klan leader. So they followed me to a rally. First they came to my gig on Friday night to show what I really do, and then Saturday morning they followed me to a Klan rally two hours from my house. And they said to me, do you think Mr. Kelly will even talk to us? I said, I will do better than that. When this rally is over, I will get Mr. Kelly, the Imperial Wizard of the Klan, to come to my house and you can interview the Klan leader inside a black man's house. They said, oh, okay. So they filmed the rally, and when the rally was over, I spoke with Roger Kelly, told him what was going on, and he agreed. He drove without his bodyguard two hours out of his way, sat in my basement, and interviewed with CNN. And, I'm gonna, and this clip was shown every hour for 24 hours all over the world. I want to show it to you right now, and I want you to pay particular attention to what Mr. Kelly says. He says that even though he and I would do different things together, it did not change his views on the Klan because his views on the Klan had been cemented in his mind for years. Then he goes on to say how he believes in separation of the races because he finds that to be in the best interests of all races. But listen to what he says about respect towards the end of the clip. Please show the clip. Davis is one of the few African-Americans you will ever find attending a KKK rally. More than attending, he is welcome. I got more respect for that black man than I do you white niggers out there. It's been a tough day for the Klan. Their Maryland rally found many local residents rejecting the message of white separatism. After it's over, Daryl Davis hangs around backstage with his friend, Klan wizard Roger Kelly. It's not unusual for blacks and whites to be friends, but it is unusual to find a black man and a Klan leader chatting pleasantly over an orange soda after a Klan rally. The relationship started over a book Davis was writing. His secretary set up an interview with Roger Kelly, but didn't tell him Davis was black. They talked and talked some more. Davis learning about the Klan, Kelly learning about Davis. We get to know one another and we do different things, you know, it's, it hasn't changed my views about the Klan, you know, because my views on the Klan's been pretty much cemented in my mind for years. Kelly and his Klan friends go to hear Davis and his band. And Davis goes to their rallies. I sat on, on, on the front row and, uh, and listened to each uh, Klansman speak. Um, some things I agreed with, other things I did not agree with. Davis thinks that his presence promotes badly needed understanding. Hate stems, I believe, from fear. For fear of the unknown, and I think this is all across the board, regardless of whether it's a Klansman or anything else. But he has no illusions about the Klan. If he did, his friend would be quick to disabuse them. And I believe in separation of the races. I believe that's in the best interest of all races. Does he really? 
Or has friendship transcended the color barrier? Listen to Kelly at a Klan rally. I'm a far right man to hell I'm back, because I believe in what he stands for and he believes in what I stand for. A lot of times we don't agree with everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The strange relationship of a KKK wizard and his black buddy. In Washington, I'm Carl Rochelle, CNN Sunday Morning. Respect is the key. Sitting down and talking, not necessarily agreeing, but respecting each other to air their points of view. Because of that respect and my willingness to listen and his willingness to listen to me, he ended up leaving the Klan, and there's his robe right there. I am a musician, not a psychologist or sociologist. If I can do that, anybody in here can do that. Take the time to sit down and talk with your adversaries. You will learn something, and they will learn something from you. When two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. They're talking. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. Thank you all very much. Oh, my gosh. He got him to leave the Klan, the national wizard or whatever. It was Grand Imperial, yeah. Yeah, he got him to leave. Yep, we heard this one before. Yeah, we've seen this we, before. We, and they, they made a movie out of it. Really? What's the it's movie called? Like that, it's called The Black Klansman. Nice. With Denzel Washington's son. Oh, oh okay. snap. We got to watch that. Okay, cool. I thought that was really powerful when I first like was curating uh, different you know, videos. You have to have a lot of guts to do what this guy did. <laughs> but it would be so simple if, you know, white people would just be willing to do it. If, they, if they're just willing to take the time to get to know the other people. And not have to worry about fearing it, then that would be easy. But, you know, it, it's hard trying to change people. Like he said, it's been cemented in his mind for so many years. It's like they're kind of stuck. They don't, they don't want to listen. They're not willing to be open to, hey, let's just be respectful. Like, I don't... I don't even understand why it's so hard for just people just to be respectful. You don't have to fear me here. We're probably scared of the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm scared of uh, some weirdo crazy people that look crazy too, but that don't mean I disrespect them or want to harm them. I just keep on moving. Same thing that, that white people should do when it comes to black people. If you, you know, if we're not harming you, we're not causing any um, violence or doing anything, you know, then go on about your business. That's, that's pretty much how I feel about the whole um, situation. If you want to get together and rally, let's rally and get together to find these sex traffickers or these pedophiles that's all here doing that stuff. Let's do something that's more meaningful than worrying about what, what another man's doing because of the color of his skin. Mm -hmm. it's, Absolutely. It's, yeah. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Man. I didn't know this was made into a movie. That's... Yeah. I know. I'm... I'm I'm way interested now. Yeah. <laughs> I learn there's something new every day. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the big thing of all of this is just trying to learn and connect with other people. And, and you know, the other thing, too, is that, look, we're learning. Melody's learning. I'm learning, right? This, this is something that we just learned today. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So that's that's pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. I think. All right. Do we want to move on to the next, or are, are we good? Yeah. 
Okay. Now, this one is going to be a little different. Um, this is going to be the flip of what we just talked about. Right. So, and if you guys tell me there's a movie about this, I'm gonna freak out. Yeah. How do I not know about all these movies? Yeah, seriously. If you're like, yeah, I'm oh, like, hey, I'm feeling you as a, a brown friend. Like, hey, I gotta tighten up. <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness. Yeah, you're supposed to be my best friend. I had no idea. I'm I'm with Melody. If if you if you if at the end of this you come at us with, oh, by the way, this was also a movie. I'm just gonna take my headphones off. Put my mic on mute, and I'm going to bed. <laughs> There's a lot of movies out there with some of this stuff, but yeah, I'm curious to see what you can ready to pull out. This okay. is... so do you want to read it in? Yeah, this is my descent into America's neo-Nazi movement and how I got out. So this is from... We did the last one from a, a black male perspective. Yes. This is also now from a white male perspective, somebody who got caught up in... The whole neo-Nazi movement and how he pulled himself out of it. Mm-hmm. How's that sound? What's that? When it comes to the Nazi stuff, I kind of stick away from them. Well, you know, the black movies too, because it gets gets you riled up. But I don't know. It was it was sound interesting as a um, as a movie though. They yeah. had some rough too with them Nazi a handful of too. No movie though, right? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I don't know. All right. So let's let's see what he has to say, right? And then okay. we'll, uh, we'll comment. Here we go. My journey away from violent extremism began 22 years ago when I denounced racism and left the American white supremacist skinhead movement that I'd helped build. I was just 22 years old at the time, but I had already spent eight years from the time I was 14 years old as one of the earliest and youngest members and an eventual leader within America's most violent hate movement. But I wasn't born into hate. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I had a relatively normal childhood. My parents are Italian immigrants who came to the United States in the mid-1960s and settled on the south side of Chicago, where they eventually met and opened a small beauty shop. Right after I was born, things got a little bit more difficult. They struggled to survive with raising a young family and a new business, often working seven days a week, 14 hours a day, taking on second and third jobs just to earn a meager living. And quality time with my parents was pretty non-existent. Even though I knew they loved me very much, growing up, I felt abandoned. I was lonely, and I started to withdraw. And then I started to resent my parents and become very angry. And as I was growing up, through my teenage years, I started to act out to try and get attention from my parents. And one day, when I was 14, I was standing in an alley, and I was smoking a joint, and a man who was twice my age, with a shaved head and tall black boots, came up to me, and he snatched a joint from my lips. Then he put his hand on my shoulder, and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. 
I was 14 years old. I'd been trading baseball cards and watching Happy Days. I didn't really know what a Jew was. <laughs> it's true. And the only communist that I knew was the, you know, bad Russian guy in my favorite Rocky movie. <laughs> and since I'm here bearing my soul with you, I can reveal that I did not even know what the word docile meant. <laughs> Dead serious. But it was as if this man in this alley had offered me a lifeline. For 14 years, I'd felt marginalized and bullied. I had low self-esteem. And frankly, I didn't know who I was, where I belonged, or what my purpose was. I was lost. And overnight, because this man had pulled me in, and I had grabbed on to that lifeline with every fiber of my being, I'd gone from Joni loves Chachi to full-blown Nazi, overnight. I started to listen to the rhetoric and believe it. I started to watch very closely as the leaders of this organization would target vulnerable young people who felt marginalized and then draw them in with promises of paradise that were broken. And then I started to recruit myself. I started to do that by making white power music. And soon I became the leader of that infamous organization that was led by that man in that alley who recruited me that day, who was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead and who had radicalized me. For the next eight years, I believed the lies that I had been fed. And though I saw no evidence of it whatsoever, I didn't hesitate to blame every Jewish person in the world for what I thought was a white European genocide being promoted by them through a multiculturalist agenda. I blamed people of color for the crime, the violence, and the drugs in the city completely neglecting the fact that I was committing acts of violence on a daily basis. And that in many cases, it was white supremacists who were funneling drugs into the inner cities. And I blamed immigrants for taking jobs from white Americans, completely neglecting the fact that my parents were hardworking immigrants who struggled to survive despite not getting help from anybody else. For the next eight years, I saw friends die. I saw others go to prison and inflict untold pain on countless victims and their families' lives. I heard horrific stories from young women in the movement who'd been brutally raped by the very men that they were conditioned to trust. And I myself committed acts of violence against people solely for the color of their skin who they loved, or the God that they prayed to. I stockpiled weapons for what I thought was an upcoming race war. And 25 years ago, I wrote and performed racist music that found its way to the internet decades later and partially inspired a young white nationalist to walk into a sacred Charleston, South Carolina church and senselessly massacre nine innocent people. 
But then my life changed. At 19 years old, I met a girl who was not in the movement, who didn't have a racist bone in her body. And I fell in love with her. And at 19, we got married, and we had our first son. And when I held my son in my arms in the delivery room that day, not only did I reconnect with some of the innocence that I had lost at 14 years old, but it also began to challenge the very important things that drew me to the movement to begin with. Identity, community, and purpose, things that I had been struggling with as a young boy. And now, I struggled with the concept of who I was again. Was I this neo-Nazi hate monger, or was I a caring father and husband? Was my community the one that I had manufactured around me to boost my own ego? Because I felt self-hatred for myself and I wanted to project it onto others. Or was it the one that I had physically given life to? Was my purpose to scorch the earth? Or was it to make it a better place for my family? And suddenly, like a ton of bricks hit me, I became very confused with who I'd been for the last eight years. And if only I'd been brave enough to walk away at that moment, to understand what the struggle was that was happening inside of me, then maybe tragedy could have been averted. Instead, I did compromise. I took myself off the streets for the benefit of my family because I was Nervous that maybe I could go to jail or end up dead and they would have to fend for themselves. So I stepped back as a leader and instead I opened a record store that I was going to sell white power music in, of course, because I was importing it in from Europe. But I knew that if I was just a racist store selling racist music, that the community would not allow me to be there. So I decided I was going to also stock the shelves with other music, like punk rock and heavy metal and hip hop. And while the white power music that I was selling was 75% of my gross revenue because people were driving in from all over the country to buy it from the only store that was selling it, I also had customers come in to buy the other music. And eventually, they started to talk to me. And one day, a young black teen came in, and he was visibly upset. And I decided to ask him what was wrong. And he told me that his mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And suddenly, this young black teenager, who I'd never had a meaningful conversation or, or interaction with, I was able to connect with because my own mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and I could feel his pain. On another occasion, a gay couple came in with their son, and it was undeniable to me that they loved their son in the same profound ways that I loved mine. And suddenly, I couldn't rationalize or justify the prejudice that I had in my head. I decided to pull the white power music from the inventory when I became too embarrassed to sell it in front of my new friends. And of course, the store couldn't sustain itself, so I had to close it. 
At that same time, I lost nearly everything in my life. I used it as an opportunity to walk away from the movement that I'd been a part of for eight years, the only identity, community, and purpose that I'd really known for most of my life. So I had nobody. I lost my livelihood because I closed the store. I didn't have a great relationship with my parents, even though they tried. And my wife and children left me because I hadn't left the movement and disengaged quickly enough. And suddenly, I didn't know who I was again, or where I fit in, or what my purpose was supposed to be. I was miserable inside, and I often woke up in the morning wishing that I hadn't. About five years in, one of the few friends that I had was concerned about my well-being, and she came to me and she said, you need to do something because I don't want to see you die. And she suggested that I go apply for a job where she worked at a company called IBM. Yeah, I thought she was crazy too. <laughs> Here I was, a closeted ex-Nazi covered in hate tattoos. I didn't go to college. I'd been kicked out of multiple high schools multiple times. I didn't even own a computer. But I went in and somehow miraculously I got the job, and then I became terrified to learn that they'd actually be putting me back at my old high school, the same one I got kicked out of twice to install their computers. This was a high school where I'd committed acts of violence against students, against faculty, where I'd protested out in front of the school for equal rights for whites and even had a sit-in in the cafeteria to try and demand a white student union. And of course, as karma would have it, within the first couple of hours, who walks right by me but Mr. Johnny Holmes, the tough black security guard I'd gotten in a fist fight with that got me kicked out the second time and let out in handcuffs from the school. He didn't recognize me but I saw him, and I didn't know what to do. I was frozen. I was this grown man now, years out of the movement, and I was sweating and I was trembling. But I decided I had to do something. And I decided I needed to suffer under the weight of my past. Because for five years, I had tried to outrun it. I tried to make new friends and cover my tattoos with long sleeves, and I wouldn't admit it because I was afraid of being judged the same way that I had judged other people. Well, I decided I was going to chase Mr. Holmes out to the parking lot. Probably not the smartest decision that I made. <laughs> but when I found him, he was getting into his car, and I tapped him on the shoulder. And when he turned around and he recognized me, he took a step back because he was afraid. And I didn't know what to say. Finally, the words came out of my mouth, and all I could think to say was, I'm sorry. And he embraced me, and he forgave me. And he encouraged me to forgive myself. He recognized that it wasn't the story of some broken, go-nowhere kid who was going to just join a gang and go to prison. He knew that this was the story of every young person who was vulnerable, who was searching for identity, community, and purpose, and then hit a wall and wasn't able to find it and went down a dark path. 
And he made me promise one thing, that I would tell my story to whoever would listen. That was 18 years ago, and I've been doing it ever since. You might be asking yourself right now, how does a good kid from a you know, hardworking immigrant family end up going down such a dark path? One word, potholes. That's right, potholes. I had a lot of potholes when I was a kid. We all have them. You know, the things in life that we hit that invariably just kind of nudge us off our path and if they remain unresolved or untreated or not dealt with, Sometimes we can get dangerously lost down pretty dark corridors. Potholes can be things like trauma, abuse, unemployment, neglect, untreated mental health conditions, even privilege. And if we hit enough potholes on our journey in life and we don't have the resources or the help to navigate around them or to pull us out, well, sometimes good people end up doing bad things. One such person who had potholes is Daryl. Daryl is from upstate New York, and he had read my memoir, and he was really upset about the ending. You see, I'd gotten out of the movement, and he was still in. And, uh, you know, he emailed me, and he said, you know, I, I didn't really like the way that turned out, and I said, well, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you want to talk about it, we can certainly do that. And after a couple of weeks of going back and forth with Daryl, I learned he was a 31-year-old uh, military veteran who had been injured and was really angry about not being able to go to Afghanistan to kill Muslims. And one day on the phone, he told me that he had seen a Muslim man in the park praying and that all he wanted to do was kick him in the face. I flew to Buffalo the next day, and I sat down with Daryl, and I asked him, have you ever met a Muslim person before? And he said, no. Why the hell would I want to do that? They're evil. I don't want anything to do with them. I said, okay. So I excused myself and I went into the bathroom and I took my phone out in the bathroom and I Googled the local mosque. And I called them very quietly from the bathroom and I said, uh, excuse me, Imam, um, I need a favor. I have a Christian man who would really love to learn more about your religion. <laughs> oh, Mind Lord. if you stop by? Well, it took some convincing for Daryl to go, but finally we got there, and when I knocked on the door, the imam said he only had 15 minutes left for us because he was preparing for a prayer service. I said, we'll take it. We went in, and two and a half hours later, we came out, after hugging and crying and very strangely bonding over Chuck Norris for some reason. I don't know what, <laughs> what it was about that, but that's what happened. And I'm happy to say now that Daryl and the Imam, you can often find them at the local falafel stand having lunch together. You see, it's our disconnection from each other. Hatred is born of ignorance. Fear is its father, and isolation is its mother. When we don't 
understand something, we tend to be afraid of it. And if we keep ourselves from it, that fear grows, and sometimes it turns into hatred. I've, since I've left the movement, I've helped over 100 people disengage from extremist movements, from white supremacist groups. Thank you. To even jihadist groups. And the way I do that is not by arguing with them, not by debating them, not by even telling them they're wrong, even though, boy, I want to sometimes. I don't do that. Instead, I don't push them away, I draw them in closer. And I listen very closely for their potholes. And then I begin to fill them in. I try to make people more resilient, more self-confident, more able to have skills to compete in the marketplace so that they don't have to blame the other, the other that they've never met. I'd like to just leave you with one last thing before I go. Of all the people I've worked with, they will all tell you the same thing. One, they became extremists because they wanted to belong, not because of ideology or dogma. And second, what brought them out was receiving compassion from the people they least deserved it from, when they least deserved it, and they were the people they least deserved it from. So I would like to leave you with a challenge. Go out there today, tomorrow, hopefully every day. Find somebody that you think is undeserving of your compassion and give it to them because I guarantee you they're the ones who need it the most. Thank you very much. Wow. What do you guys think? Well, that was that was really powerful, um, even just to hear it from, you know, his mouth of, it's, it's really good when people can't come up out of that. Um, the whole thing that, even from both stories, I keep, and even what we've been taught is people fear what they don't know. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't understand it, though. Like, for me, unless it's a bug, I, I, I want to know. Like I don't like I work with Indians and I, I didn't know anything about their culture. So me, instead of fearing it, I'm like, hey, let me learn about your religion. I'm I'm learning stuff about theirs. And that doesn't mean I'm converting, but I'm just learning how, even though we're so much different, we're so much alike. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, whatever your religion is or whoever you believe in, the ultimate ending is is all the same. It's all about love, happiness, respect you know, just the love of human beings, that's pretty much what every real God or whatever higher being that you believe in, that's the ultimate meaning of however you say your religion. Or even if you're non-religion, it still doesn't take a genius to say, hey, you know, I'm just gonna be res respectful. Even though I don't know anything about you or anything like that, I'm not gonna judge you until I get to know you. Mm -hmm. um, so it just still behooves me how people just do fear what they, they don't know but they don't like, know just get, yeah. get to know us i mean like i mean we're human just like you at the end of the day we just want to you know survive and, and live a, a happy life just like everybody else you know it's crazy because there's people out there that actually believe that homosexuality is contagious that if you get too close to someone who's gay it'll make you gay wait that's not true stop it 
<laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's... it's such a serious... Between the last one and this one, I want to cry. Because it is so true that trauma, neglect, abuse, they all lead to people shutting off and having a wall and hating whatever is not them. Yeah, I mean, I, and I have to say, you know, this guy is, like, spot on. You know, this dude went through, basically, what seemed to be a loving family. Mm-hmm. They just I weren't there for him. They, they were, you know, they were doing their store. They were... Yeah. They are doing what it was, you know, and... He just got wrapped up, right? All it takes is one person to get wrapped up, you know, one person to say, hey, join the, join us, or, you know, whatever it is. But He's fairly young, too. I mean, for the most part, really you know, young. racism is a taught and learned behavior. Absolutely. Um, for the most part. So, 100%. we're not born like that. We are born into sin, but we're not born, born hating someone because of the color of their skin. At the end of the day. So he was taught that. And when you do have circumstances in your life, your brain and your mind does open up to a, a lot of things that may not be um, positive for the most part. And he did get wrapped up. I mean, he pretty much lost his identity. He forgot that he wasn't even fully, you know, <laughs> why he forgot. Yeah. He also mixed. That's right. Yeah. He That's forgot right. his whole his entire family were immigrants. That's right. And prejudice is 100 one thousand, one million, one trillion percent learned, mm-hmm. right? Whether it be through experience, parents, whatever it might be. And it's funny because, like, our kids, for the most part, don't hang out with white kids. <laughs> I just true. realized that I'm trying to think, you know, they see white kids at school, but... They're, really, they're nice our, they're they, nice yeah, yeah, our friends are mostly black or Hispanic. But, but think so, about like the multi-million dollar neighborhood that is right behind us. Mm-hmm. The kids that live in that neighborhood. They're not going to have the same experience. No. Or Palm Beach kids or. But I'm saying that you know. they don't see a difference when we hang out, you know, whoever we're hanging out with. They don't see any kind of problem. It's 100% learned. Mm-hmm. There's... And, and but we're also not sitting here saying like, oh, you know, mommy can't get a job because those, you know, affirmative action, blah, blah, blah. You know, right. there's, there's that too. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of that, like this guy, you know, that we were just talking about, you know, Christian... And, you know, it's a, it's very unfortunate and it only takes, it's like, it's like a match, right? It Mm -hmm. takes one match to start the flame. And before you know it, your whole world's upside down. All your prejudices are justified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like he said, he wanted and he just wanted to be belong, you know, to belong. It had nothing to do with the ideology or the rhetoric. It was just he wanted to belong. Mm-hmm. 
It didn't matter what they were spouting. Right. It's crazy. I mean, he lost his whole family over hate. Yeah. Yep. I mean, for me, I mean, I, I can't hate somebody. That it takes too much energy. It's too much energy to hate someone. You don't even know. I don't even know you. You don't even know me, and just sit here and be like, I don't like you because of the color of your your skin or what you believe in. It's just. It's ridiculous. Like, you I don't have what? that much time and energy to, to waste on not liking people that I have no, I have never met. I, I cannot agree more. Mm -hmm. God, it takes so much energy to, to hate, right? And whether it's like you're just in like in a tiff with a friend mm -hmm. or, you know, it's like, oh, can you believe what so-and-so said and... It consumes I, you. Yeah. Like, I just... On the flip side, I've never met you, Jay, and I really like you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good people. That's why Tawana stuck around me for so long, man. I'm good so, Jay, I'm going to block you on social media. Just, I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> no, you're absolutely 100% correct. It takes so much effort for mm -hmm. hate versus just... Toleration I just let people be. Or just, or just, you know, toleration or just being. I've just gotten too old. You're not bothering me. Let's out here. Let's all, let's just get money. That's what it is. Let's just get money. Let's just let's get money. It. Yep. <laughs> you didn't go to, you didn't go to Palmish Lakes, did you? <laughs> Jay, you didn't go to Palmish Lakes, did you? No. Okay. No, I'm straight from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, okay. I was going to say with, with, Get straight, get money. I'm, I was, I was like, wait a minute. Sounds familiar. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really all what everyone wants to be able to, you know, take care of themselves and their yeah, family. Of course, the case is. So let's just all do that, and we can. Life is so beautiful. Like I, me, you, me and Tawana, we was out riding today, and I was just thinking the same thing. And the skies were kind of gray here today, and I'm like, I don't even understand how people can have so much hate in their in their mind because i can even look at the gray sky and look how beautiful it is because you know it's, it's sleepy weather so you, you can find beauty in in some of everything so to waste it on not liking a group of people because of their color is is ridiculous and it, it's really it is. time to just like grow up at the end of the day it's, it's really time for people to just grow up 100 percent. yeah yeah 100 percent. okay well this was a good podcast. I'm so, I so appreciate that you joined us, Jay. Oh, yeah. I'm just glad I was able to make it um, on time. Had the baby and everything ready. We in here running back and forth, making sure <laughs> he's not loud enough. But I really did. I enjoyed it. Hey. I, I loved it, all the, the um, videos and um, things that we were listening to, especially the last one. It's really good when you can hear from like a white person's perspective to say, hey, I, I did this, I went through this, and I changed yeah um, okay, i'm glad you enjoyed that one yeah i i kind of try to curate the videos in a specific fashion order. yeah yeah so i'm glad you enjoyed that last yeah. one well you'll have to join us again i know it's hard with a baby i we had to shuffle around too yeah we did the same thing <laughs> we did the exact same thing it was like how okay. old your baby he's two ours is uh like 15 months Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like, put the baby down, put the baby down. We got to go on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I'll be back. You know, Swan is always trying to get me to listen in 
with her and she's really into these so we'll be around is tawana well, around you. is tawana still here she let me talk i'm the talker if, if you guys notice i'm always like interjecting and i have a an opinion for everything because i just feel like people just need to like it's, no, life is no, so no. people make life harder than what it really is you know no that's yeah, fine that's I, good i just want to give a quick like joke barb at tawana if she's still there yeah she listening tawana she where are you at i'm right here listening i'm waiting on the joke this wasn't uh the ted you were expecting was it <laughs> No, it wasn't. I thought it was something else. Touch it. <laughs> well, thank you guys so Thanks, much. Guys, we had so a lot much. of fun with you, and uh, we will definitely have you back. Till Thanks next so time. Much. Yep, we're going to go ahead and wrap the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, yeah, if you want to hear more, go to blnwatercooler.com, and we are BLN. Uh, actually, it's blacklivesnow.org. So it's B L N O W.org. Yep. And uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, hey, appreciate everyone listening. Yep. Have a great night. Until next time. Thank you. Good night, great. everyone.